What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbiotica is your solution to great-tasting all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or artificial nonsense. It's just pure goodness in every pouch. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. That's C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And we don't just mean the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go paper-tarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out, the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says, I'll stop the world and melt with you. I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And I'm Joe McCormick. Today... We are launching what is hopefully going to become a series of podcasts within the Forward Thinking Podcast. I think full of hope is fine because we're the ones who decide. So, well, <laughs> odds are good. Decent chance. We'll just see if, if it keeps happening. Yeah. Right, that's fair. But here's the basic concept. It's you don't see that in sci-fi because there are a lot of times when we're sitting around having conversations about things that seem to us very likely to happen in the future but the majority of science fiction depictions of the future don't realize these events. And you guys sort of uh, uh, touched on this with the anti-gravity or the artificial gravity episode, rather, or the idea that, you know, in the, fu- the sci-fi, you always see people walking around on spacecraft. But 
really wouldn't you see a lot of people floating around uh-huh. most of the time? Yeah, yeah. Oh, we, we talk about this a lot on the show, actually. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, usually our, our entrance into any given topic is science fiction because that's where most of us experience the future. Yeah, yeah. I, well, I mean, I, I often experience the future, but by the time I can talk about it, it's over. Yeah, but w- if you use the example of artificial gravity, there at least there are some technologies we can talk about sure. where we'd say, okay, there's some things we have in mind that could probably solve the artificial gravity problem just by simulating it with centripetal force or something like that. But there are other things that we think are are pretty sure bets for the future. Yeah. And you rarely see them in sci-fi, or at least the majority of the time you don't. And the one we wanted to talk about today is the consistency of modern speech and language. So I want to start you all out with a quote. All right. Okay. So this is a quote I grabbed from the internet by Jean-Luc Picard, one Captain Jean-Luc Picard. Second best captain of the Enterprise ever. (laughs) Time to start a fight. All right. Geek fight already. (laughs) Pike was the first, obviously. So the captain of the Enterprise in the next generation once said this. The prime directive is not just a set of rules. It is a philosophy and a very correct one. History has proven again and again that whenever mankind interferes with a less developed civilization, no matter how well-intentioned that interference may be, the results are invariably disastrous. What's wrong with that? Well, on one hand, he's advocating the Prime Directive, which I think is debatable. Oh, well, fine, but that's a different episode. (laughs) That's a whole other nerd fight. (laughs) But uh, taking completely aside the... Uh, the opinion of the Prime Directive, as advocated in Star Trek. You notice how he sounds pretty much like how we talk today? Except, you know, more English. Right. Well, well okay. So he has his own literary style, his own sure. style but of yes, speaking. But, yes, it, uh-huh. it's, but, it, but he's 300 years in the future, and he's speaking like we speak. That's true. That is true. He's using the same same uh, terminology that we use. He's using the same sentence structure, same syntax, everything along those lines. Yeah, I it's, see that. It's highly intelligible to us. It it sounds exactly like someone like Picard would talk today. Well, sure. You picked one of the Star Trek episodes that was highly intelligible. I could have pointed you to a few that aren't. <laughs> but there there are some things that uh, go even farther into the future where, you know, they've depicted far future civilizations that basically just speak 20th century English. Sure. The example I pulled was Planet of the Apes. Very, you know, classic science fiction film. Uh, I'm talking about the Charlton Heston one, obviously. Uh, so in the the movie, the year that the astronaut travels to, he's in he's in suspended animation, is traveling near the speed of light for, I think, a year and a half and lands on a um, what he believes is to be an alien planet in what is the year 3978. But it's actually, spoiler alert, Earth. <laughs> and uh, you have uh, this whole caste system of apes that have evolved over time. And the gorillas are like the military police and the orangutans are the politicians. The chimpanzees are the scientists. And um, they all speak English. Uh, they speak English that the the astronaut can understand, even if it's not English. Let's assume for a moment that it's whatever other language it happens to be. But it has been translated for us, the audience, so we can understand it. The fact is the astronaut can still understand what the apes are saying. So the language itself has not changed in his journey. So even if you give it the opportunity of saying, oh, well, it's just so that you can understand the story, the characters within it can understand each other. So the divine spark exists only in (laughs) simian brain. Yeah. So, so what, what you get there is this crazy idea that these characters are able to communicate 
uh, despite hundreds of years of separation between them. So here's did a, you grab a Dr. Zayas line? I did grab yeah. a Dr. Zayas line. <laughs> I had to. Yeah. You here it goes. You are right. I have always known about man. From the evidence, I believe his wisdom must walk hand in hand with his idiocy. His emotions must rule his brain. He must be a warlike creature who gives battle to everything around him, even himself. Touche, Dr. Zayas. <laughs> yeah. Sounds like a particularly eloquent 20th century English Whereas speaker. Whereas Charlton Heston replies with yeah. get your dirty hands <laughs> off me. Uh, yeah. Do we have anything even farther ahead than that? Oh, sure, yeah. If you want to look at um, The Time Machine by H.G. Wells, you want to talk about super into the future. So the protagonist of The Time Machine travels to the year 802,701. That's crazy. Now... Flag, I read that book. I thought that in the book they did speak a different language. They do in the book. Okay. In the original Oh, this was in the film from the nineteen right. sixties. Right. Yeah. Okay. In the book version, the Eloy, which are the the sort of a docile um cattle, spoiler alert, yeah. in in the time machine. But they are they are descended from humans. Uh are our, our great great grandchildren ain't too bright. Right, right. Uh well, half of them aren't. Right. The other half are the Morlocks, who are all the ones who do all the work and right. have been using the Eloy as cattle. Essentially right. they eat the Eloy. Uh so the Morlocks are the bad guys and the Eloys are the good guys, more or less. Kind of. Actually there's some a lot of socialist commentary in that book. Uh, but yeah. anyway. Uh so H. G. Wells in his story the Eloy spoke their own language that was uh, unintelligible to the protagonist. But in the film, again, you have the Eloy and uh, the protagonist being able to speak to one another fluently. So, <laughs> but you're talking about 800,000 years into the future <laughs> and people are still speaking, um, well, 1960s era English. Yeah. Now, the reason why we're finding this so amusing is because all you have to do is look backward Look back over time and see the historical evolution of English and see how it has changed dramatically just in the last thousand years or so, let alone 800,000 years into the future. Yeah. Okay. So we plotted a little journey, a little literary journey for you. Through quotation. Uh Through quotation. So we've started with opening lines from literary works uh, 100, 200, 400 years ago. The main thing to keep in mind, which we hinted at earlier, is that each of these is a different writer with their yes. own literary style. So right. even two writers today aren't going to sound exactly alike. Oh, obviously. Right. But uh, even with that in mind, you're going to really notice the differences in a minute here. Sure. Okay, so the first work that we have was published in 2014. It's called Unlucky 13. It's by James Patterson and Maxine Petro. Um, and we, we chose it because it is the at the top of the New York Times bestseller list this week. Combined digital and print nonetheless. So so it's, You mean we didn't choose it because it's your favorite book? Uh, no. <laughs> but it's but it's a popular work within the culture, and so we thought that it would be a good one. So so we're, I'm going to quote the first two paragraphs. They're short, so I chose two. It was an ugly Monday just after noon. There had been no sign of sun so far, just a thick fog that had put the blocks to traffic around the Golden Gate. I was behind the wheel of the squad car, and Inspector Rich Conklin, my partner of many years, was in the seat beside me when Claire called my cell phone. Claire Washburn is my closest friend and also San Francisco's chief medical examiner. The call was strictly business. All right. All right. So that's that's obviously modern English. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, nothing. No, I've got no qualms about it. Obviously, I mean, it was published this year. So clearly we would have a very similar style. Well, what's next? Um, uh, I, I pulled a quote 
from exactly 100 years ago, not to this day, but to the year. <laughs> right. 1914 from the short story Dracula's Guest by Bram Stoker, I which I believe... I to do this in an English accent. Was it? No, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> Wouldn't it be an Irish accent? Well, I, I guess you... technically I could do an Irish accent and that would be just fine. Do you, why don't you read it, Jonathan? <laughs> oh. This is from the short right. story Dracula's Guest. I think it was originally a chapter of Dracula that was removed. Right. Well, I'll, I'll do this um, I'll do this in English because most of the characters in, in Dracula were actually English. Okay, uh, with okay. the exception of the title, the, the, the character from the title. I hope you can pronounce all these words. When we started for our drive, the sun was shining brightly on Munich, <laughs> and the air was full of joyousness of early summer. Just as we were about to depart, Herr Delbruck, the maitre d'hôtel of the Quatre Saisons, where I was staying, came down bareheaded to the carriage and, after wishing me a pleasant drive, said to the coachman, still holding his hand on the handle of the carriage door, Remember, you are back by nightfall. The sky looks bright, but there is a shiver in the north wind, and it says there may be a sudden storm, but I am sure you will not be late. Here he smiled and added, for you know what night it is. Which, of course, everybody knows is Walpurgis Nacht. Well, obviously. <laughs> I mean, what, what other night look could at it all have the, been? All the banners that were up and down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. So already, this is pretty similar. Oh, sure. But, I mean, there are a few cultural markers. Like in that first passage, we were talking about cell phones. There was, there was a, a, the Golden Gate Bridge popped up. Sure. It, it was very clipped. This is a little bit more, um, a little bit more elaborate in its uh, structure. Yeah, you can also... Uh, I mean, one easy marker is the technological differences. They mention carriages uh-huh. and do- coachmen and stuff. Uh, the cultural difference that I thought was interesting was it, it says bareheaded. Like, that's a thing worth observing. Uh, yep. Specifically, because, a dude wasn't wearing a hat. Right. right. I mean, that, that would be weird back then, but normal now. Uh, and there's just this, even though it sounds pretty similar to modern English, there's a little bit less than modern cadence. To the mm-hmm. pros, it's I actually think. a little closer to Jean-Luc Picard. I mean, Picard <laughs> yeah. spoke. That's true. Spoke more like a you know nineteenth, maybe late eighteenth century character, but with terminology that was obviously updated. Yes. Yeah. But the sentence structure was much more formal. Than, yeah. than you would find in normal uh, uh, speech these okay. days today. Okay, I want to go back 100 years before that All right. to 1814, where I pulled the, the beginning paragraph, part of the beginning paragraph of Mansfield Park by Jane Austen. Now, keep in mind, again, this is Austen's particular literary style, but we're definitely going to start getting into some strange lands here. Oh, uh, I'll, I'll do this one as Jane Austen um, is pretty cool, and I'm a lady. about 30 years ago miss maria ward of huntingdon with only seven thousand pounds had the good luck to captivate sir thomas betram of mansfield park in the county of northampton and to be thereby raised to the rank of a baronet's lady with all the comforts and consequences of a handsome house and large income all huntingdon exclaimed on the greatness of the match and her uncle the lawyer himself allowed her to be at least three thousand pounds short of any equitable claim to it she had two sisters to be benefited by her elevation, and such of their acquaintance as thought Miss Ward and Miss Frances quite as handsome as Miss Maria did not scruple to predict their marrying with almost equal advantage. What? That there's fancy talk. <laughs> <laughs> it is fancy talk, but it's also, I mean, people, I don't know, something was happening differently back then. Sentences were happening in a different way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yes. And and syntax and, and structure and, and just... Uh, just the culture itself changes over time. That's really what we're getting at here. But, you know, 
I don't think we've gone back far enough. Yeah, did not scruple to predict their marrying with almost equal advantage. <laughs> well, that seems pretty normal to me. Uh, no, no, uh, no. I, we got to go further would, back, Joe. We got to go further back. You're gonna? Are you gonna make me read Ben yeah, I'm Johnson? I'm gonna make you read. Okay, ben so Johnson. the next one I grabbed was from 1614. That's 400 years ago this year. This is Ben Johnson's comedic play Bartholomew Fair. Uh, I did a play here because I I couldn't find the full text of. A good prose work. Well, from, uh, you're getting novels to the point. Yeah. didn't really exist as such at that point. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, well, okay, but certainly not prominent in the way. That, right. Yeah. Right. They weren't popularized the way that no. plays were at the yeah, time. Plays were more likely where you're going to get a lot of prose. Right. So this is Johnson's Bartholomew Fair, which op- <laughs> F-A-Y-R-E. Oh, and it's a knee slapper. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> It certainly is. It opens with the character called the stage keeper kind of giving this uh, meta dialogue, like talking about the play that's about to happen. Right, right. Uh, So here we get. Gentlemen, have a little patience. They are in upon coming instantly. He that should begin the play, Master Littlewit, the proctor, has a stitch new fallen in his black silk stocking. Twill be drawn up ere you can tell twenty. He plays one o' the arches that dwells about the hospital, and he has a very pretty part. But for the whole play, will you hat the truth on't? <laughs> <laughs> on it, on't, on it. O n hyphen t, on it. I am looking lest the poet hear me or his man, Master Broom, behind the arras. It is like to be a very conceited, scurvy one, in plain English. <laughs> I love that you got the plain English there, that's, it, that's why I picked that part. Nice. Uh, which, this to me sounds like a bizarre mix of modern English and nonsense. It does, it does. And then, of course, we wanted to go back further, and, and Joe and Lauren wanted to challenge me with uh, a little Middle English. Uh, right. So by the time you get to, like, the 1300s, you are fully into Middle English, which is basically a different language. I mean, it's the predecessor to English. Right. right. It's, but, it's but got without, a lot of French in it. Yeah, and without scholarly knowledge of how to, like, I, Joe or I could not read this aloud, but Jonathan, due yeah. to his specific education. As it turns out, education, um, yeah, my, my degree was in Medieval and Renaissance English Literature. So <clears throat> please uh, do forgive me if I do stumble at all. It has been about 20 years since I've done this. This is the beginning of Geoffrey Chaucer's The Canterbury Tales, yes, the, the prologue. prologue. One that April with a shorter suit at the Drachter March had passed to the rota and bothered each vein sweet liqueur of which Vetu and Gintridge is the floor. When Zafurus eke with a sweet breath, Inspired hath, actually it should be inspired hath in every holt and hath. The tender croppers in the younger zona hath in the ram is have the And smaller foolers mocking melodia that sleep in on nicht with open ear. So pricketh him nature in here courages than longing folk to go on on pilgrimages. And palmeris waters they can stronger stronders to ferne hallways couth in sondre londers, and specially from every shearer's inda of Ingolanda to Canterbury they winda. The holy blissful matter for to seek that them hath hopen one that thy were seeken. Woo! Ooh, yeah. Yeesh. So, nice job, man. Um, so, as yeah, you I can did probably one, tell. I did one they. It should have been thy. T-H-E-Y was pronounced thy, not they. So I, I realized that after I said it. We'll, but, we'll give it to you yeah, this time. I got it right the second time. So uh, That is not easy to do. 
uh, well, for you know, a modern no, English it's, speaker. It's, well, it, it, and, and a lot of the words are spelled in a way that's similar to modern English, but they are pronounced in a very different and way. And we'll get into the reason for that in just a little bit. Uh, but if you go even further back. Yeah, say you go back from the Canterbury Tales to something like Beowulf. Yeah, if you go to pre-Norman invasion England. So the the Middle English is, that was that, that French influence that came in and mixed with Old English to form Middle English, right? Yeah. So before the Normans d- uh, decided to visit England and stay a while, uh, the language was Old English, which comes from Old Frisian, which is also the root for Old German. So if you look at Old English and you start looking at words, uh, the words and sentence structure look a lot more like German than they do modern English. Yeah. Um, so one of the phrases, my favorite phrase from Beowulf is, and it's repeated a few times, is that was God Knick, which means <laughs> which means he was a good king. So obviously that gets, that gets <laughs> oh said goodness, quite yeah. a few times. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, Thatwas God Knick does not sound at all like English, but this is all technically English. And we've just seen how from say, I don't know, around 700, uh, AD all the way up to modern day, it has changed dramatically. So why would we not assume it would continue to do so? Yeah, if Jean-Luc Picard is born in 2305, according to the Star Trek lore, if he's speaking in the, just the middle of the, of the 2300s, that should be like the difference between us and somewhere between Jane Austen and Ben Johnson. All right, so here's the question. Now that we know that language changes over time, how is it? How can we predict what language is going to sound like in the future? I mean, how does language itself actually change? Uh, the short answer is that nobody knows. Shucks. Yay. <laughs> um, well, OK, it's a really big question is the thing. And it involves genetics and the development of multiple brain structures and plasticity of the brain. Also development of speech structures from the tongue to the vocal cords, the palate, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then after that, the, the growth of systems of vocabulary and grammar. But there are a bunch of really cool theories out there, um, like like research out of the University of Reading in 2008, which was done with statistical tools that are usually used in biology, indicated that, that languages often evolve in sudden spurts rather than steadily over time. And OK, note that those sudden spurts can take 100 years or more. But but still, this, this is an interesting finding. They, they analyzed three of the world's major language groups, those being Bantu, Austronesian and Indo-European. In all three, some third of historical language changes came on suddenly when a subculture split off from a larger population. Okay, and so that thing you said when they came on suddenly, though it could take like a hundred years, that doesn't mean they happened immediately. It just means the rate of change is not constant. Right. So they can slowly change and then quickly change. Uh And even so, I mean, when you think about it, I mean, language is is one of those things that unites a people. Right. You, yeah. You, that's it one of the defines of people. Yeah. W- without that common language, obviously, you can't have any kind of communication whatsoever. And when you can communicate with someone, you start to psychologically identify with that person. You think this person belongs, at least in some part, to a group that I also belong to. Mm-hmm. And when you encounter someone who cannot communicate with you and they are not able to have that kind of meaningful conversation in any way, then you start to think. At least on a psychological level, this person does not belong to the group to which I belong. So there are a lot of complicated issues here that kind of guide a a language forming and then evolving over time. Oh, sure. And, and part of it is that uh, when, when a group breaks off from a larger group, mm-hmm. they maybe not 
intentionally, but but certainly in a way purposefully distinguish themselves by certain language markers. You, you can see that in teenagers who are trying to be different from their parents or from oh, when when um, segments of the British came over to America, they began speaking differently. Right. And then some areas, some populations of the British coming over to America ended up preserving their way of speech a lot more faithfully than others. So you'll often hear interesting stories about how there are pockets of populations in Appalachia, for example, that have speech patterns that are more akin to the Elizabethan patterns of speech way back when, which to me is fascinating. The idea that the proper English we are used to hearing from uh, television and movies is not really indicative of what you would have heard in Shakespeare's time. To hear that, it might be better for you to take a trip to the to the mountains, the wow. Blue Ridge Mountains. <laughs> yeah. And even if it's not such a such a large scale populational kind of thing, I mean, uh, okay, so so the exact role of all of these components of speech are definitely in debate among among linguists and biologists and psychologists and anthropologists and lots of other fields of study. But you know, it, it's obvious to even the casual observer that that vocab and grammar do change over time, and and are prompted by by cultural events, even if they're not this kind of break off event. It could be a change in technology, wherein new words come into the vocabulary and. Um, you know, new, new sentence structures happen because Internet. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah, because Internet's a good way of putting that. Yeah. Actually. Or, or, or just just locational changes, stuff like that. And um, so, I mean, the generalized theory is, is that the, you know, any current generation of speakers will internalize the language that they were taught and perhaps differently than the previous generation expects them to and also adopt new words, new structures, new sounds and then transmit them perhaps shoddily, to the next generation. And it's interesting. In English, the way we generally uh, see acceptance on a larger scale is when we have certain uh, institutions acknowledge words as being actual words. Oh, yeah. You always see these news stories. They, add, you know, Webster's adds so-and-so to the dictionary. Right. Or, Although or that's, Oxford. That's, right. that's, that's really more a PR ploy than than a the physical indicator that the language is. <laughs> Time but, to sell some dictionaries. Yeah, exactly. It, you, remove, you remove that PR ploy by a couple of generations and it's now become oh, sure. part of the, uh-huh. the official documented record. Now you have It does other, still matter. I'm just, but, I get snarky. But there are ploy. countries like, um, there are countries like France that actively try to protect the 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 native language and try and keep new uh, Anglicanized words out of it. They don't want so there's no le selfie. Well, they don't they don't they're not really they're not really uh, pleased with le cd for example huh. or cd I should say. Well, and and in some languages like in Japanese for example, there's a whole separate alphabet for foreign loan words in in which you you preserve the the original language by by foisting off these new words onto a different alphabet that makes it intrinsically other. Right. So that's interesting. Uh, I want to talk at an even more basic level, though, about how language changes, because it's not just these macro changes where overall vocabulary change. So we we, we do get new words, yeah, right. and old words go out of style. And there's a sort of way of changing the cadence of sentences, certain ways of phrasing things go in and out of style. Mm -hmm. But at the micro level, even the pronunciation of the different phonemes in a language, the different units of sound can change over time. Sure. Uh, So the one example I want to refer to again is in English, because we're English speakers here. It was called the Great Vowel Shift, and this happened over the middle of the past millennium. So it, over many hundreds of years, but it's centered around probably like 
14th, 15th, 16th centuries. Mm-hmm. And this is the process by which long vowels in English actually changed their sound. They used to sound more like they sound in a Latin pronunciation. So, for example, the letter E would sound like an A sound. So mm-hmm. I guess if you wanted to get on Middle English Twitter and compose a tweet about a sheet, you would actually compose a tweet about a shade. I often have. <laughs> and another example. That's why like I have the, so many Twitter followers. Yeah. You, you do have Twitter, a lot of Twitter followers. It would be Twitter, though. Because oh, Twitter that's right. is with an I. Yeah, that's that's exactly the other one. So Twitter <laughs> would be Twitter because the letter I used to be pronounced more like E. So the 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 word mice that we say mice now that spelled the same way in Middle English that'd be mice. Well, and when I did the prologue, one that April, April would be yeah. what became April because you have that I that becomes the E sound. Wow. So, yeah, it's amazing that this transformation happened and that linguists still are kind of wondering what exactly prompted that shift. Because, you know, you you thought that a lot of the the changes in English pronunciation happened due to the various invasions that occurred. But that all happened. That was all, you know, pretty much over and done with by the end of the 12th century, beginning of 13th century. So, yeah, I I would guess that that was printing press related as a lot of changes in language were from the 1400s through the 1600s. Gutenberg, you scamp. (laughs) Well, before we get to the printing press, I want to talk about the fact that, in fact, pronunciation can still change today. Oh, yeah. And has been observed to do so. So are are there major changes in English pronunciation of vowel sounds today? Well, I actually read a really interesting article in Slate about what's called the Northern Cities Vowel Shift. So this is in the United States, and it was first noticed in the 1960s. And this is a subsequent vowel shift coming after the Great Vowel Shift. But this is affecting the pronunciation of short vowels rather than long vowels. Well, you can certainly... There are enough uh, preserved recordings that if you listen to something and you call it old timey, it's partly because of the way people were speaking and the way they're pronounce- pronouncing things. So, or, or even if you're watching a movie where a character is is portraying someone, I think of the Hudsucker Proxy all the time. Uh-huh. You know, anything along those lines. But everyone starts talking like this, you know, and it's all in that <laughs> fast paced, and it's all it, it, it's a different vowel sound than what you're used to, mm-hmm. even if you're in whatever part of the country the the film or television or radio program was set in uh it's it doesn't sound the same way and people will call it well that's old timey and part of it is cuz we have had these smaller vowel shifts happen over time right i mean they can just be part of the normal way that a dialect forms within it's a subdialect of a language so you you have yay and then you have yeah and then you have yeah <laughs> All and, right. and I would I would suspect I don't have any research on this, but that 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 great northern vowel shift had to do, in fact, with television. I mean, mass media definitely has an effect on how we talk. Yeah, it has an effect, except I don't know which way the effect would go. So we if we look into the past, we say, OK, we can observe that language evolves like this. But they didn't have TV and radio and the Internet. And now that we have these things, I wonder if does that really affect the rate at which language changes? And if it does, does it speed it up or slow it down? I I could see good arguments for both. Well, and here's the thing is that because we're talking about even speedy changes in language taking over course over a century, 
there's no way for us to answer that question without dramatically extending our lifespan so that we can actually <laughs> observe it happen. Yeah. Right. Well, These are all things that are happening generationally. Uh-huh. And by the time you get to a point where you start wondering about these questions you don't have anyone to ask <laughs> well but, but 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 these days we're going to have much more of a of a verbal record of how sure. people spoke a hundred years from now and and we'll be able to chart a lot more carefully especially through algorithmic uh, investigation how exactly people were speaking at different points in time and in different areas um, I'd argue that that an early form of mass media the aforementioned printing press uh, certainly had a a very large and very quick effect on language relatively I mean I mean it didn't standardize any language instantaneously but it did condense dialects and word use specifically among populations as as literacy went up I, I mean you know chartably over the course of a couple centuries which is yeah. again quite Quick for it also language. standardized uh, spelling, right? <laughs> right. Well, again, thing. slowly, but yeah, yeah definitely. Um, and and similarly, that the internet today is bringing written works and and authorship, perhaps more importantly, to ever wider audiences. And you know, okay, so this will definitely change language, as Joe said. It's it's kind of up in the air exactly how it's going to do that. Right? Does it does it get everybody on the same page and keep them there better, or does it? introduce more new usage faster. Mm-hmm. Uh, some some researchers are suggesting that it's going to cause some languages to die out um, while others either develop in their place or grow to dominate. There's there's a lot of theory that that English in the next hundred years or two is, is going to be by by far the world's dominant language. Although Okay, maybe not English the way that we understand it today, because (laughs) similar to how like Creole or or Yiddish developed out of combining cultures and languages, we're currently seeing a huge burst of media being presented in what's called Hinglish, which is a combination of Hindi, Punjabi, Urdu and English spoken primarily in India. But it's important and widespread enough that some British diplomats are learning it. Uh, India, as I understand it, has quite the population. Yes, it does make sense. All right. So we started this whole discussion talking about science fiction films, television series, radio programs, that sort of thing, where the characters speak more or less in modern English. And whether or not that's for the convenience of the the audience is that's a matter of debate because that could come into it. But are there do we have any examples of books where that's not the case, where we have an evolution of language? Well, certainly there are lots of small-scale examples, but I was trying to think of a book taking place in the future where the language that the characters speak is radically different. And I did come up with one example, which is A Clockwork Orange by Anthony Burgess. Right. So the main characters in this novel are these brutal, hyper-violent, cruel gangster thugs, and they speak in this very stylized, very highly different for, for, form of English. Nadset. Yeah, they're still basically using English syntax, sort of like as an English reader, you can make sense of it referencing a, a glossary. Right, right. But they use all kinds of slang. It's just rife with slang that we don't use today. Do you yeah. want to do a line real quick, John? All right, sure. <laughs> Yeah. There was me, that is Alex, and my three Drews, as Pete, Georgie, and Dim, Dim being really dim, we were making up our Razudocs what to do with the evening. I shouldn't do all this line because there's so many words that I would need to bleep out. Um, <laughs> I could do the, it was a milk plus mesto, and you may, oh my brothers, forgotten what these mestos are like. Things changing so scory these days and people quick to forget. But it was a place where you could peat milk with something else in it. You could peat it with knives in it or a synth mask or Drimcom. Yeah, it's, yeah. All, so, so you get a mixture of, um, Russian slang, 
Yes. Because uh, that's a big influence. A lot of it comes from a Russian. A lot of it yeah. comes mm-hmm. from Russian. Uh, some of it is this sort of what we Pop think of culture or, or techno babble kind of stuff. Because mm-hmm. yeah. like you get the you get the synth mesk, this kind of thing, where it's synthetic mescaline yeah. is essentially what that means. So you get these these terms that are all sort of slangish, and of course the main characters are teenagers, so they speak very heavily in slang. Right. Um, and some of the some of the sentences are are absolutely beautiful and poetic, but it requires you to look at that glossary like eight times. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so I, I think that this slang vocabulary that Burgess uses in this novel is really great for two reasons. Number one, it actually does reflect how languages change over time with the introduction of new vocabulary mm. and speech patterns. But number two, it actually has a role in the novel itself, because, as I said, these characters are just awful, evil dudes. And the words they use help speak to the transformative psychological power of language, mm-hmm. because it's very easy to see how the very words they're saying, uh, the gang members use these words to desensitize themselves to violence. Sure. Well, you know, there are other examples as well. I think the interesting thing here is, uh, like you say, in this case, it was a very calculated um, decision on the part of Burgess to create a language that reflects the the, the personalities and psyches of these these uh, main characters. You do have other characters in the book who do not speak in this kind of slang. They're the adults, right? Mm-hmm. But that that also gives you that whole other separation as well that we were talking about earlier. Right. Sure. And uh, right. And and there are plenty of works that, on a very small scale level, will give you a couple of new words or usages of words here and there, like a like Grok from Stranger in a Strange Land, mm-hmm. or Green from The Fifth Element, or Shiny from Firefly. <laughs> um, but uh, but. I, 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 I would. I would. You. <laughs> it's shiny. It's super green. Um, super so I would. I, I would argue that the techno babble is a little bit of a separate thing because it's it's vocab that's you know specifically about technology that doesn't exist, and so it's really more of a plot point yeah. um, than a linguistic device most of the time. It, it can be there in order to give a sense of quote unquote legitimacy to the science fiction to make it sound more uh, technically advanced than what we currently have, and you have to be somewhat inventive to do that because obviously. You know, you can't just have all the same technology we have today and and put it forward a thousand years and expect people to think that that's an amazing science fiction novel. <laughs> right. I, I think I totally agree with you that just having the name of a piece of technology in there that we don't have that technology today it doesn't really represent a change in language. But it can, depending on the level to which the technobabble is incorporated into the everyday language of the characters. So, like, I'd say there's a difference between just making a one-off reference to a technology that doesn't exist and the way, for example, Facebook talk has been incorporated into the very fabric of how we discuss our social lives. Or even the fact that we can look back in the past and what once was a, a version of technobabble has become an actual word now. So, for example, robot. Um, it's right. not not something that happens all the time. It's actually very rare when something like that happens. But when it does happen, it's interesting to see something that was was taken as as a, a an innovative, you know, this is a new word or at least a word that's being used in a new way, uh, mm-hmm. and and it ends up being adopted worldwide. That's kind of interesting too. Or for some terms like um like like fridge, which comes from frigidaire, which was a brand originally and not what the actual object was called, but has kind of morphed into that thing. Sure. I had no idea. I thought it came from refrigerator. I'm I'm pretty sure. I could be totally wrong. Am I, I totally wrong? I have no idea. I suspect you're right, but <laughs> and I I was just making an ass out of you and me. We'll check that, and if I'm incorrect, you'll never hear this. <laughs> <laughs> 
some uh, sci-fi works actually meet us halfway, I'd say, because the future characters speaks they basically speak modern language but the narrator may give some indication that this is just for the reader's benefit and right. th- that the characters would actually be speaking a much different language one example i thought of was in isaac asimov's the last question so there's the characters are speaking as it's written modern english but there's just one part where one of the characters in this far future setting uh remembers that they're dealing with a computer called a microvac and the character remembers that the AC at the end of Microvac stood for analog computer in, quote, ancient English. <laughs> yeah, so so it refers to the the modern English of the reader, the English that you're reading the story in as ancient English, right. as if that's something alien to the character. Obviously, it would be problematic to write an entire book out of a, a manufactured language right. and say, this is what English eventually evolves into, and you need to learn it so you can read the story. <laughs> that's exactly the point I wanted to end on, which is that I, I'm not trying to chide sci-fi writers for not doing this more because I think it totally makes sense why you would write stories in, in a modern dialect of a modern language, whatever language that is, because your readers are speaking that. Oh, sure. Right. And, and it takes so much brain space uh, or, or work for the writer and or the reader. I mean, you know, as, as much as I appreciate the weird brilliance of, of authors who write in that really heavy dialect, I've personally, I don't know about you guys, but I've never made it through a novel length work of like Faulkner or Chida Mayville or Irvine Welsh. <laughs> or even something along the lines of an, a completely um, uh, manufactured language, something like uh, Tolkien. You know, he, he oh. was really interested in languages. Oh, and sure. Things like Welsh, uh, Gaelic, as well as uh, Middle English and Old English. And that... Strickland, you speak Elvish, don't you? <laughs> I may, I may or may not have an Elvish tattoo. Um, <laughs> I, so. I I can't say that I, uh, along similar lines, I can't say that I ever read any of the Elvish poems when right, I was going through right. Tolkien. And, but, and it was interesting because, it, you know, according to some accounts of what Tolkien went through, including some of his own uh, interviews, the whole ge- genesis of Lord of the Rings was really the creation of a world and that would allow these languages he had invented to exist. So that's, you know, it's obviously a, a different approach. Yeah. Well, as nerdy as it is, I, if I'm correct, I, you will correct me if I'm wrong. I know. But I think <laughs> Tolkien was not just like making up words. He he was a linguistic scholar. Like yeah. he oh, yeah. understood mm-hmm. deeply how languages are formed, the the morphological relationship between different words and, and how syntaxes are created. So he put in the work even so to far, make these fake languages Even so far real. as to have two separate languages for the elves who do have a separation that lasts a very long time in the span oh, of, of elves, Tolkien's elves work. Elves get old. Yeah. yeah, they they can they can they stay around forever, those jerks. <laughs> but uh yeah, so so even then with the the two two different I guess you could call them races of elves cohabitating uh, Middle Earth, they have different languages, which is very similar to what we've been talking about with populations splitting off and forming a different uh, dialect or a completely di- new language from the parent language that they came from. Right. So in the end, I just want to emphasize, I'm not saying that if a writer writes in their modern dialect for the far future, that's like stupid. Of them. <laughs> just make sure it's, you it's really, like, Yeah, it's no different than if you were going to write something taking place in ancient Sumer and you wrote that in whatever language you write in, because right. that's just that's how readers will have access to it. Yeah, sure, so just, sure. just make sure you put a sentence at the beginning saying, 
Uh, everyone spoke in a language that's totally not like modern English, but it's okay because I put it in modern English so you can understand it, and then we're all cool. Or, or incorporate something like a like a Babelfish or yeah, a universal, universal translator, translator or yeah. whatever the TARDIS does. And it just so happens to also work on the audience. Uh-huh. It's meta. So what what is Jean Luc Picard really saying that we're only hearing in our modern English? It's he really, beautiful. He's like, it's I, beautiful. Lolzies. What's what's weird is to- that. Totes lolzies. It's, oh, it's actually all in French. He's just being French because he's wearing Universal Translator. It comes out English. Yeah. So yeah, that's le lolzies. Le lolzies. Le totes. All right. Well, that's all I've got in me for this episode. So this was interesting because it was more of an his, uh, of an historical look at uh, the English language, but really to kind of think, you know, it's it's difficult to project what language will be like in the future. What we can say is it will likely be very different from the way it is now, uh, you know, at least in some form. It may be that the syntax is more or less the same, but the pronunciation is different. It could be that the pronunciation remains more or less the same, but we end up having weird syntax. Uh, it's it's really interesting just looking over the past and realizing how alive language really is. And that that's something that if you're ever working on a science fiction novel and you want to address that in a realistic way, you got to get a little creative and figure out, you know, well, first of all, no how, one, no one really how do you knows. make it readable. Right. How do you make it readable? But no one really knows. So yeah. really, you can't make a mistake until that time <laughs> finally comes around. And by that time, you're probably not going to care anymore. Um, so anyway, interesting topic. I'm glad that you guys picked this uh, as a series. And I look forward to exploring other po- kinds of things that that's is never really addressed in science fiction. Our next idea is we want to do a, uh, we want to do You Don't See That in Sci-Fi about the awkwardness of technology. That'll be fun. Yeah. <laughs> that'll be a fun one. Yeah, because, well, we'll save it for that episode. I don't want to, okay. I don't want to spoil anything. <laughs> so if you guys have any suggestions for future episodes of Forward Thinking, even if it's, uh, an episode in this series or something completely different, let us know. You can drop us a line on Twitter, Facebook, or Google Plus. Our handle at all three is FW Thinking. Or you can drop us an email, fwthinking at discovery.com, and we will talk to you again really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does all the work for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billing, scheduling, and more. And you can resell on Picasso's Marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. Visit Picasso to see thousands of listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O dot com. 
When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? It's estimated over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. To save, visit HealthLock.com today. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.